Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, conducted again via Skype, Cassia and I spoke with Ben Judah, the author of Fragile Empire and also This Is London. We talked about how he got into writing and his early career as a foreign um, writer for, for magazines including Standpoint, and then went on to discuss his books in greater detail and had a, a very brief um, conversation about some of the ethics involved in writing This Is London. Yeah, a uh, short and snappy answer he gave to that one. Anyway, it was a really fascinating and wide-ranging conversation, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello? Hi, Ben. Sorry about that. Can you hear me? No, 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 it's fine. It's just, uh, just don't worry. Technology can be... We, we'd failed to put in a special code, which meant that it started literally playing uh, white noise over the top of us <laughs> on the recording. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's, let's gather ourselves uh, and have a few seconds silence and then we'll start. Okay. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. Cassia and I are here, uh, or rather not actually physically here, but in Skype connection with Ben Judah, the author of Fragile Empire and also This Is London. Ben, it's uh, great to have you here with us. Thank you so much. It's really, really cool that you're so interested in in my work. I feel really flattered. Well, it's, it's great to have you here. Um, could you start a bit by telling us about your beginnings as a writer, where, where you came from and, and where your sort of interest in writing and the areas that you've written about began? My beginnings as a writer... I guess my beginnings as a writer would be on this sort of tiny little computer I had in about 2004, which I used to pretend to do my homework on. And I used to write these little stubs and short stories, often paragraphs, which I would lie to my friends and claim were novels, which were pretty much universally sordid, violent, uh, sexually explicit, and sort of fantasias about (laughs) my school... London and the sort of London underworld and sort of like gothic twisted uh, tales of the Jewish community. Sure. Um, Which is the second answer of like, where do you come from? Um, I think, you know, I was brought up bilingual in English and French and uh, lived for my childhood in the Balkans because my father's a, a, a journalist was educated in French lycées in the Balkans and then in London, and I've got British and French nationality. But the answer of where do you come from would be from the Jewish community. Sure. And to what extent is writing and journalism the the family trade? Could you tell us a bit more about you know what what kind of stuff your dad was doing when you were a child and how that influenced you? Of course. Um, so my father Tim Judah is a sort of frontline correspondent uh, who has written for 20 or 25 plus years on the Balkans especially and also reported uh, across Africa and uh, from Ukraine for The Economist uh, in particular and for the New York Review uh, of Books. He's like an independent uh, journalist so he doesn't He's not on staff anybody. He's not sort of controlled by anybody. So he's sort of master of his own times. In terms of like how that influenced me, uh, I think if my father had been a jeweller, I probably would have been a jeweller. I think if my father had been, um, you know, had been a tanner, I probably would have probably would have done that. Well, I'm creative in some ways, but very uncreative in, in others. And it's also like my mother had a has a very important influence on me. My mother uh, has worked in in publishing and worked in editing. 
and um, so so that had a sort of equally important um, sort of uh, influence on me. So having sort of become interested sort of through the family in writing, what were your kind of first steps and first um, publishing experiences? It's kind of like, you know, writing's like a big kind of word. Like I'm, I became interested in like a very different kind of writing from, you know, them. Like my, you know, my father's speciality is like, you know, really is sort of, you know, foreign affairs and getting to the bottom of, like, intricate and nitty-gritty political situations, you know, in, um, you know, in sort of Eastern Europe and the, uh, and the Balkans. And when I was growing up, I, I wasn't particularly interested in that and, like, getting to the bottom of the EU summit or really getting the scoop from the, the NATO summit. I became interested in sort of what's the sort of like another part of kind of planet journalism or planet writing, which was the part that most resembles literature, which was uh, reportage. And I became really obsessed by what is called the Polish school of reportage, like in particular by Richard Kapuscinski and by Jacek Hugo Bader, mm. who these two like, just brilliant um, kind of Polish reportage masters, uh, you know, especially Kapuscinski's uh, book called Imperium on the Fall of the Soviet Empire, which is this extraordinary mixture of like memoir, travel, history, literary exegesis, possibly fantasy. Yeah, I, I was I was going to ask, what about the role of you know these are these are books which have faced some criticism for potentially fictionalizing aspects. Were you were you conscious of that when you were first? encountering them or were you bothered by that um i wasn't particularly aware of that when i was uh, uh when i was 16 17 mm. but i became kind of the reason i like them i wasn't particularly reading them as i wasn't particularly reading them as kind of journalism or or news reportage i was reading them just as sort of pieces of writing and they just seemed so much more vivid and alive because they were about the real world than a lot of the kind of new and fresh novels that I was reading. And I became, you know, they led me with like the gateway drugs into um, reading reportage, you know, on you know, then, which was the outbreak of the Afghan war and the Iraq war and reportage from kind of Africa, which as, long, as far as I'm aware is, <laughs> has all been super fact-checked by the, the publications and I started to realize that my initial belief that I wanted to write kind of novels and novels and short stories were where like the most real and cool writing was was slightly mistaken and actually it was in you know part of my father's planet of journalism so that's how I sort of sort of found myself there. So I've got kind of two questions for you. Um, the first one is, were you sort of super, you've talked about, you know, finding all these inspirations from, um, you know, other, in other languages. Were you, did you want to sort of create something of that kind that you saw in, in Polish writing in English? Or were you sort of more focused on just sort of just writing for its own sake? Um, well, something that I've, noticed in terms of my reading is that I've always you know, I sort of, you know I live sort of bilingually and I speak Eastern European languages and I've always been 
a lot more excited by a lot of the kinds of journalism and reportage I found in French or I found in uh, Russia or uh, elsewhere in, mm. in Eastern Europe than I have been in, in, in English as of late. But well, did that example, lead like, you? I found, but, the, but I found did, the New Yorker like really boring. Mm. I don't know about you. But but did you? But did that did that feeling lead you to to want to write that way yourself in English? Did you see sort of a, a gap in the market, as it were? Um. Well, I kind of, when I was at when I was at university, I made like lots of kind of slightly you know sort of failed attempts to to write novels and to write more uh, and to write more fiction. So yeah, it was a combination of you know not having managed to, <laughs> to write something, uh, you know, write something in sort of uh, write something fictional, and I also also yeah, like I wouldn't say it was like a business decision, like I like I mm. sort of thought thought of it like that. I just um, yeah, I just sort of uh, I guess I did want to write something like that in uh, in English. I guess I guess you've you've explained it to me. But that... <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Um, but my my second question is sort of what were your f- sort of first breaks um, into journalism? First breaks into journalism. So, as sort of as soon as I could, when I was sixteen, I started trying to kind of travel as much as I could for as long as for as long as possible. And I my first you know, sort of big trip, I guess, was um, after I'd done my GCSEs, I went to kind of Turkey, I went to Eastern Turkey and spent, um, spent the summer, like, travelling around there, which, like, kind of thrilled me with this sense of, you know, this sort of unreported worlds and just how different life was uh, in these sort of frontiers of the Middle East. And then I began, like, very seriously learning Russian, and I went to spend, uh, after I... Um, did my uh, A-levels, which I sort of did out of French and so sort of rather complicatedly. I um, I went to study uh, Russian for a few months in St. Petersburg and in Moscow, and I became just completely gripped by the sort of Isherwood-like atmosphere of Moscow in the beginning of the Putin regime, and I wanted to write about that. And at the time, I didn't know if I wanted to write about it in fiction or in journalism. And my first break into journalism was when I was travelling around um, the Caucasus uh, in the summer of 2008 and I happened to be there when Putin uh, sent his forces into Georgia and a magazine called Standpoint had been launched and they didn't have a, a foreign correspondent or a roster and I happened to be there and I'd been writing blogs for something called ISN Security Watch uh, which is sort of now a sadly defunct blog, and one of them was sent to them, and they got in touch. And so I wrote this Caucasus diary for them, and I tried to use some of the sort of principles behind the Polish school of reportage when I wrote that, which was that the most interesting thing about a war is not what's going on on the front line, where it's just sort of blasts, and you know what your experience is going to be is cowering behind a wall. But to try and report it on, you know, far away from the front lines, like in the heads of normal people. So I did this diary going through kind of Armenia and Georgia about what sort of normal people thought about the war. And they liked that. And then they asked me to write 
they, when I got back to London, they went, oh, would you like to, to write another kind of piece of reportage for us? What would it be? And I, this was my, I guess, my breakthrough piece, because it was the first one that got basically any attention. And I went to them that, you know, I wanted to go... I wanted to go in search of the gulag and see what it actually looked like, like what was actually happening there now. Like what did these camps, you know, look like across Siberia? Like what was it actually like, you know, in that in that landscape? You know, and I felt like how strange it was that you have that we had like very little sense of what those places were like, despite you know having a very clear idea of what Nazi death camps are like now and. And so I wrote this piece called sort of In Search of the Gulag, which I travelled across Siberia through a stretch called the Road of Bones between um, Yakutsk and Magadan, which is Yakutsk right in the sort of middle of Siberia and Magadan's on the coast. And I travelled along this road, this sort of ice track, which uh, Stalin killed like between half a million and 1.5 million people uh, to build. And I travelled across it through sort of hitchhiking, and sort of meeting the people who live there, who are all the descendants, uh, mostly, of people sent to the camps, like going to try and find and survivors in these isolated places. Ben, did you have um, I think I remember when we spoke on another occasion, you mentioned you had a stint in Moscow with Reuters as well. How did that fit in the mix of, of what you were doing? Well, that only lasted a few months, actually. And that was sort of terminated quite rapidly because uh, my mother became very ill uh, but she's not anymore, like, thank God. But and so I had to sort of go back to I had to sort of go back to London. Mm. So the reporting that I did about Russia afterwards was done basically for a mixture of sort of four or five month long trips, or one month here, one month there trips. Whilst I was in whilst I was in London, so I did have a stint for Royce and Moscow, but it, it kind of well, it wasn't very long to be honest. And also, I must say, I was extremely unhappy. Well, I was going to ask about this because this, I mean, this came up a bit when we spoke to Sam Knight, who'd had a sort of slightly oblique relationship to, to more conventional reporting before going off and doing his own thing. And, and as someone who's subsequently focused on books and longer form stuff, how, how did that brief encounter with the wire service piece work for you? Well, I was just sort of basically a translator. So there was this, there was, this, there, there was a time, I guess, there's this sort of nightmarish, MS-DOS system that the wire, the wire was on. And there was this sort of horrific Russian MS-DOS like wire system. And so I would be sort of plugged in on one screen to the Russian one and one screen to the Reuters one. Basically, a lot of what we did was just news would break on Interfax or on, um, you know, the, some of the other Russian wires. Like, And then I will basically just write up, cop killed you know, sort of Cabadindo Balkaria, you know, reports into facts. You know, Cabadindo Balkaria is located in the Caucasus, you know, more info soon. You know, so I did a little little bit of, like, reporting around Moscow for them. But I was, like, a sort of, hot, you know, the lowest grade sort of grunt in a giant machine. Sure. And the, the broader experience you had with Standpoint, what was that like? And, you know, what was... What was the magazine kind of trying to do and, and what sort of other other opportunities do you have there? I, I read as well the piece you did about um, looking for the, the Valley of the Old Believers. But perhaps you could talk a oh, bit yeah, more yeah, about, yeah. about the magazine and what its kind of mission was. I mean, how right-wing was it then? Well, I'm not, I'm not too right-wing. Um, well, the idea behind Standpoint 
uh, is that, I think this is true, is that there should be a place for people to take strong opinions. There's a lot of opinion sections. I, I never wrote an opinion for them. And um, I think that their sense was that a particular Western political and literary tradition was under threat and people were not taking seriously this around 2008, the threat posed by um, jihadism, Islamism uh, and Putinism. And I, I guess I fitted pretty nicely into that sense that you know, things were going very much awry in Russia. But Daniel Johnson is a great believer in, like, big essays and the writer's voice and letting writers, you know, express themselves. So, like, they never edited me, really. Like, they sort of, like, corrected a few, like, spelling mistakes and told me that, you know, one or two paragraphs were kind of wildly, horrifically self-indulgent. But, like, they never, they never, never, like, told me what they... They never told me what they, you know, what they wanted to hear. It wasn't like working for the, for the, for the mail or yeah. something. And, and as I mean, and, and presumably as a young writer, you you got, you know, you got more real estate and so forth than you might have in a. Oh God, it was brilliant. You know, I was so much happier that I had that relationship for four or five years with a small magazine with a writer with an editor that I kind of trusted and deeply admired, and with a place that would let me have every two months or three months you know, 4,000 words. Did they uh, pay you? I mean, again, we, we always try and ask about money as frankly yeah, as possible. Sure, yeah. Did they did they pay you anything appreciable for those pieces? Well, they pay me £1,000 and I got £1,000 expenses. So basically, they gave me £1,000 they would just sort it out for yourself, hmm. which I much prefer than having to deal with like claiming it back and then they're always like trying to fuck you as you try and claim it back and it's like, they've got these horrible bureaucracies to stop you getting the money, you know, and so I just did it. You know, and I found ways, you know, kind of know how to do things cheaply. And I just found ways to do it. So that was great. And, um, yeah, no, that was great. And also that allowed me to basically develop my own style and, you know, to use that sort of pretentious word to develop my own voice. And so I was thrilled by that. So I didn't have, that was my main, yeah, sort of experience. And also they were just, you know, they were fun. You know, they're like, one of the, like I just mentioned earlier, like I find... For example, the New Yorker, I find it incredibly boring. It's like incredibly predictable articles and like so boring and the tone is boring and the emotional, the editing has all got the same structure. Like if you notice in New Yorker leads, it's always like on the 15th of January, Paul Ryan was looking that way and you flick through and it's like in the 10th of May, this this other guy was doing that then. And like all of the articles have the same like emotional tenor to them and it's just but I stand for really fun. So when I told them, like, I was travelling through Siberia and I found this tribe, this sort of Russian Christian sect, I guess you could say, called the Old Believers, who don't use modern technology, and they live in this incredibly remote place, not using modern technology, uh, and they live off hunting lynx. They were like, great, can you just go there for like two weeks and just join them and tell us what it's like? And it, was, it seems like it was very much through um, the pieces that you were writing standpoint that you got the opportunity to write your book Fragile Empire. Could you tell us a little bit more about that book and, and how that came to be? Sure. So like um, I signed after I'd done like a, a whole bunch of pieces um, for uh, for standpoint I started I thought maybe this could be 
maybe this could be a book. And so I um, sent, you know, sent them off. And uh, yeah, and then that, that's how Fragile Empire began. Fragile Empire kind of, I guess it's like all writers sort of like feel very ambiguous about their first books or like earlier work. Like I didn't, like there's a, there's a lot about that book that's very intellectually insecure. I was like determined to show that a young person could write something incredible about Russia. There's like so many numbers in it. And there's like so much. There's just too much. There is such a thing as like too much reporting, too much data, and like and too many, too many interviews. And a book that's too long. It's like much too long. Mm. Did you? It, it, we we sort of like to kind of get into a bit of the the nitty gritty of the process. But you said you had this idea that you sort of thought, okay. I really want to write this book, and you had this idea in your head. Did you take it to an agent first, or were you? you know, no, what, what was I didn't, you have sort of... I didn't. I didn't have an agent at that point. I got seven thousand pounds for it. Mm. So you took it straight to um, the publisher, which is quite an academic um, publisher, it was Yale. Yeah, I did, and they asked me, "Can you make it slightly more academic?" Which I did. So that was how. But like, you know, I kind of shopped around. Like, nobody answered my emails, and mm. you know. That was that. <laughs> so that was that was how it happened. But like, it was nice to work with them. They were, you know, they 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 gave me, you know, they gave me like all that independence, and they took they took a chance on me. I'm really appreciative of uh, uh, um, them for it. What was the experience of of working directly with an editor without kind of an agent mediating the relationship? What was that like, and, and did that affect your kind of experience of, of the writing of the book? No, I didn't have an agent, so I don't know what it would be like. Um, well, do you still not have, have an agent? Night? I have an agent now. I have, an agent, I have an agent that appeared afterwards, but um, well, what else? Uh, well, I don't know how it would have been different with an agent. It's just sort of, you know, again, maybe I would have got more money, I guess. But uh, it was nice. I, I liked my editor. She was really cool. We sort of, you know, she. Kind of, just edited a bit, and uh, and that was that. You 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 talked about um, looking back on it now that you kind of feel that it's kind of got too much in it. How did you go about organising the material, and did you work with your editor on the kind of the structure of the book, or did you have a very clear idea of of how you're going to organise the material and structure the book? Well, basically, I just did. Basically, I basically. Instead of choosing which book to do, I did two books in one. And the two book, one book is, you know, a mixture of, is a, essentially a history of the Putin regime interviewing the key players, which makes the argument, which even though Putin has succeeded in conquering Russia and keeping power, he's like failed at his main mission which is to strengthen the Russian state. And the argument, which is the Russian state inside, is actually extremely corrupt and extremely brittle. And rather than being a machine to restore the authority of the Kremlin, it's become a machine through corruption, which actually undermines the functioning of the Russian state. And then a second book, which was a kind of journey around all of these places in Russia to show that the glitz of Moscow is not is not Russia. And so there was just sort of too much in it. It should have really been two separate books. And also, presumably, um, it was 
a little bit like hitting a moving target because you know situations were were changing all the time you know how did you find an, an end a natural end point when were you like right I've got to stop it at this point mm. at that particular moment that I finished it there was a sort of lull in the sort of volcano of, uh, of Russian history in which the anti-Putin protest movement had effectively subsided and the war in Ukraine had not yet begun so there felt like a, a natural moment to, to end it. But, but yeah, like sort of sadly, it's a, a lot of it is sort of, uh, it is sort of out of date. And Ben, I have a question which is, is partly about your books, but a kind of more general um, stylistic question, really. Can you talk a bit about your interest in, in experimenting with, with different styles, for example, in, in some of the journalism that you sent over with the, the FT Uber piece? I know the piece you did for Newsweek on, on Putin. How have you, where does your interest in that come from? Who are the influences and, and, and what, what avenues are you interested in pushing in that direction? So, um, so for example, when I wrote Fragile Empire, the book was a blend of like basically two styles. One which was the kind of data-heavy think tank report and the data-heavy sort of FT, very serious, long read, plus the sort of plus the sort of Kapuscinski-esque travel, you know, just, just footnoted and interviews recorded. And I was kind of very dissatisfied with that at the... Uh, at the end of it, the whole experience, because there's a tradition of foreign correspondence books, which that one sort of you know, fits into, which sort of forced the writer towards, you know, grand sweeping commentary on the state of affairs or prognostication, or they are they become books about politicians, about people's reactions to politicians, which is only a very small part of a, uh, of a country's kind of experience. And I became quite dissatisfied with that, and I wanted to find a way to do, to write differently. So I became, you know, so after that, I found myself thinking about, like, how do you write that kind of book? So I decided that you can't really write those books like Bruce Chatwin or, you know, Richard Kapuscinski anymore because the way people read has changed, the way people write has, uh, has, has changed, and that... How so, Ben? Um, I don't... You know, I love In Patagonia by Chatwin, but I don't think you can sort of really write a book like that because... Because it's a blend of fact and fiction, or... Well, if he'd been a bit, if he'd been a bit more serious about it, it, it could have been all fact, you know. If you just, you know, take, it, it, I don't think that's the the crux. It's just you can't write like just my travels in Argentina because how many Brits do you think have like backpacked around Argentina, like two million or something, you know? And it's not, you know, these lands aren't kind of foreign in that way uh, anymore. And also, there's just so much journalism. It's so good. It's so vivid and there's so much like vice and there's so much news night that I found those sort of reportage country books slightly outdated and also there's like an impetus in because of the way journalism is structured you have these sort of two aristocracies of um these aristocracies of um, think tank sorry these two aristocracies of um 
opinion writing and foreign correspondence. Sure. And that's just seen as what's success. It kind of leaves a whole side of, of journalism and a whole side of reporting basically sort of neglected. So in my thinking process, it kind of led me to think, it led me to think that actually the most the underreported and underwritten and understoried and not told in that reportage style landscapes were the ones really closest to home. And that people were very familiar with reportage writing about Africa or reportage writing about India. Ben, can I can I just interrupt you there? Because I think I think it sounds like you're you're moving towards your next book, which you, we want to talk about in just a moment. Yeah, but sure. I just I just had one other question. You know, you mentioned that time moves fast in Russia and, and your book you, your Russia book is no longer current, but do you have, you know, clearly a momentous year for Russia, America relations, Putin, Trump and so forth. Do you do you have any thoughts on the current scene and what's going on going on there with with the Kremlin and with uh, with Trump and Russia and all of that kind of piece? Uh, well, it's become like, I don't really write about Russia anymore. And one of the reasons is it became basically impossible for me to do journalism there or somebody. So you used to be able to go to Russia, get a tourist visa or some kind of dodgy business visa and just do it. Because I've never worked, apart from briefly for Reuters, for like a news organisation. So I didn't have like the FT or the Times or whatever, like sponsoring me and getting me accreditation and a press card with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So I was doing it, you know, the grey zone, like, you know, possibly if you look at the Russian criminal code illegally. Mm-hmm. And over the last few years, they would now just arrest you and expel you for, for ba- basically breaking visa regulations. It was unenforced, and there was kind of understanding that that's how it was done. So that become, became very difficult. And secondly, they just, they just, you know, clamped down. So you can't interview, you can't interview, you can't get to the bottom of all these different organisations. There are people that you can interview and people are accessible, that they've made accessible and everybody else doesn't talk to, uh, doesn't talk to, uh, to journalists. So I found in my reporting, I was sort of going around in circles, I could interview the opposition and the Russian opposition are fascinating, but I sort of found I'd run out of what I could sort of write about them or add about them by after I've been reporting on them for like three or four years. And it's, uh, I must say, it, it is sort of the same characters. Like after a while, I just started to wish that there would be like another president in Russia or just some other figures that I could write about. But, but, there, but there aren't. So it's like two reasons. I sort of, you know, I... I kind of sort of ran out of things I could report, really. And then, like, the things that you can report in Russia, which are the kind of reportage pieces from Siberia or the Caucasus, I felt I'd, I felt I'd sort of done all the ones I wanted to do. And it also began to feel that it wasn't actually very original and that it was basically sort of mimicking uh, my heroes and sort of mimicking... Um, a, a sort of pretty, you know, an established 1970s... Uh, tradition. We're um, going to move on to, to This Is London, but just one one more just question as a point of interest. How long did it take from taking the idea to the publisher to um, publication itself? How long did um, Fragile Empire take? Three years, I think. Three years. And so moving on to your second book, um, did you uh, get 
sort of an agent and sort of do things a lot more officially off the back of fragile empire? Uh, well, so basically after I finished Fragile Empire, all of this, there was a lot of like mental dissatisfaction going around in me about, you know, what's original, how to do something different, how to mm. not do what everybody else is doing. And I did, I started doing pieces for Standpoint, you know, just sort of experimenting with, you know, you know what I could do and what could potentially be, be books. So I went to Ukraine and I did a uh, I did a reportage piece there, which I tried to do it differently, and I wrote it about the nightmares that people were having in Kiev and about the psychologists of Kiev and what was going through people's heads and people's fears then, you know, sort of the anti-front line. Mm. And then it didn't really work, and then I went on a sort of Hasidic pilgrimage to try and write about like the inside of the insides of sort of Jewish religious experience and again I sort of left feeling sort of, sort of been here before and sort of done that before and and then I went back to standpoint and I went, Oh well can you I think I had some I had a totally daft idea which was I'd heard that there were groups of people killing poachers in the Amazon and I was sort of curious you know, I could have like joined one of those groups, was curious to see what would happen. And they went, oh, I'm sorry, Ben, we don't have any more money for that extra £1,000 we used to give you to do, uh, to, to go abroad. Or, you know, can't you do anything in London? So I was like, oh, and I needed the work. So I went, oh, well, can't I just be a foreign correspondent in London and write about Eastern European London? And it's out of this essay I did for them on working as a Polish builder that uh, my next book, uh, This Is London, uh, sort of emerged. Did you immediately know after you'd written that essay that you felt that this could be a book? Well, I immediately knew a lot of things, actually. First thing I realised, this is original. It's taking a register of writing, a way of writing, which is used to, you know, developed to, uh, to describe, you know, far-off countries and applying it to what's ignored under people's noses mm. and I felt oh this is original at last and then I felt yeah there's just like a music to it and I wanted to write more and I could just instantly see that I wanted to write a book about London but London seen from the point of view of normal people from the different immigration waves that had reshaped uh, the British capital since I was born and mm-hmm. turned London into a very different city than the one I'd sort of been the one I'd been at school at before I started reporting on Russia of my mind was sort of mentally elsewhere. And could you talk a bit about the, the process of doing it? I mean, I, you know, how you went around spending time with these different groups, the Polish builders and so forth, and how you, how you got into them. Just what are your, what your kind of reporting method and the timescale for doing that was? Sure. Well, it was basically two, two years, two and a half years. And I was just mentally trying to remind myself <laughs> timescale were, were so right to me else now and basically um, I basically for the first nine, eight, six, eight months it was a disaster I was just interviewing people and they were boring I was interviewing people I didn't know what I was asking them and I was interviewing all these sort of annoying NGO type people and I was just getting nothing out of it and I was thinking oh God, I can't write, I don't want to write, I just don't want to do it, I don't want to write a book, which has the word 
Sadiq Khan or Zach Galton if it's not what I want to do. And then kind of slowly I, as I was like looking at my notes, I was thinking, what what is different between all these experiences? And I suddenly realised, oh, hold on. The arc here is is the arc of life life and death. And the immigration is an experience a bit like birth, it's an arrival. A whole bunch of my interviewees are describing that first phase, which is arrival and excitement, and essentially the memories of young people in the city. Then a whole second stack of my interviewees are describing what it was like to, you know, raise children, and to raise children that are very different from you uh, in London. And then what it's like to get old, what it's like to fail, what it's like to succeed, what it's like to be transformed by London, and then what it's like to die. So once I'd worked that out, that I wanted to write a book about the arc of life and death in the new London, it all became very simple, like what I was looking for. I was looking for people whose lives and whose stories could read like small novels who would tell me, you know, what all these different experiences of the life cycle is like in, 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 in 21st century London. And like then, then that became easy in terms of like how to show people. How did Ben? How did you? How did you go about? You know, actually getting into these groups. You know, gaining access, gaining their trust, getting them to hang around with you. Did did language play a big part in that, or it's basically just language? And so, um, for Eastern European groups, um, I speak Russian and I actually speak quite decent Romanian. And in order, for example, to to sort of live with Roma on the street. You know, I found friends from the Romanian community who could help me and guide me into it to try and kind of get to know them. And then I was able to convince them because I had a common language with them to sort of let me let me join them. And also just time. I've had two years to, to do it. And there are only like 15 chapters in it. So <laughs> the, the amount of, uh, in terms of like, the, there aren't that many not that many portraits in it. Did, so, for example, it sounds like living in the DOS house Sorry. With, uh, with them. Um, I wanted to... There were places I couldn't get access to just by asking people if I could interview them. And I wanted to show how... You know, one of these experiences of arriving in London from Eastern Europe was living in these overstuffed DOS houses mm-hmm. of, like, 20 more people. Um, in like one single room, sometimes much, much more. And so I basically kind of Googled on these sort of uh, migrant notice boards and on the migrant uh, Facebook groups, got the numbers of people who were running them, and then went just saying that I was a migrant worker from from Ukraine with a friend who was Romanian, and that's how, how we got in. And did you uh, did you write a lot of it on your phone? I think I read an interview or something like that, that your, your actual writing method is was to use your phone. Is that right? Yeah, I wrote I wrote vast chunks of it actually on my phone because um, I ha- I find often the most the best writing and the best the clearest thoughts and the best descriptions judge for yourself I don't think they're any good they're good descriptions are the ones that come to me really in the moment when I can kind of hear that voice in my head and I just wrote them down instantly. Also, like often I was in situations where. You know, I couldn't really take out my computer or I couldn't really take out my <laughs> notepad. <laughs> so, like, for example, when I was in that DOS house, it was, you know, I was there for days. It was, 
yeah, I was taking notes on my phone. What so not the, to give the game away. What were the sort of the, the... Do you have any ethical concerns about sort of misleading the people that you were interviewing or, or, or saying that you were sort of someone who you weren't? No. And this book seems, seems like it was a very different one. Firstly, it seems like it was a lot more intentional. And secondly, it was um, a lot more uh, official. Did you have um, your agent by this stage? And what was the um, process like of getting the advance? What had you learned from your first experience of writing a book? Um, well, the experience of the first book was that the publisher was looking for a book on Russia and I was the right guy at the right time for them. And they told me what they wanted, and then I sort of did it in my own way. Whereas with this book, it was a book I wanted to write, and it was exactly what I wanted to write, and I knew exactly what I wanted to write, and I felt I knew how to write it. And then I went to various publishers. So I got an agent, I told her what I wanted to do, she liked the idea, and then a lot of publishers were interested, and then, and then yeah, that's sort of how it happened. Was there sort of, um, with the advance, was there, was there a, a bidding war? And, and, and did you have concerns about, um, you know, getting, well, I mean, did you get a sort of very large advance um, after a bidding war? Or, or, or was there anything sort of in the process that surprised you doing it this way around? Um, well, so there were, yeah, a lot. So there was a, an auction, as they say, which I find very funny. <laughs> as if there's like an auction house for books. And, yeah, well, people, people made offers. And I went with uh, Picadorm and Millims. They offered me a contract to do uh, three different books. So of which, yeah, so I've got, so I've got a contract to do two more, actually. What, what was your feeling about that multi-book contract? I mean, clearly, you know, there are different factors. You, get, you know what you're doing for a longer period of time, but then you're, you're sort of tied in at certain levels and so forth. How did, how, you know, both at the time and subsequently, how have you felt about a multi-book deal? Well, I felt very happy because, you know, I wanted to be a writer and somebody was offering me a platform to sort of to, to do it. And also, I had no idea whether the book was going to be any good or whether it would get any attention. And I sort of felt, oh, great, well, if it's a complete flop, I've got two more tries, really. But, it, I mean, I suppose, it, but then it was a big success, right? It was a big seller as well and so forth. Did that, then, did that then mean that you felt you were obliged to do your next work for for less money, frankly, than you would have got if you'd been able to kind of go to the open market on the back of the success of This Is London? Um, well, so, well, this is why it is useful to, to have an agent. Yeah. Uh, I think, like, somewhere in the appendix B, C of the contract, it was written, and I would advise anybody doing a, a multi-book deal to do this. It goes, if... X number of, if like 10,000 books are sold, the second book shall be remunerated at this level. If 50,000 books are sold, it shall be remunerated at this level. And if, you know, a million books are sold, it shall be remunerated at that level. And that basically takes the sting out of, um, you know, signing a book when you're an unknown, signing a contract to do three different books when you're an unknown writer at a very low rate and they're going to be trapped in that, but it also creates a situation for the publisher where if your books just are not a hit, they don't, you know, they don't, uh, <laughs> uh, they don't get screwed financially either. So that, that, that happened there. So I could probably have got 
uh, more money, um, uh, maybe significantly more money, if I'd done it, if I just started afresh again. But um, the particular clauses of that contract meant that, um, you know, I, I was fine. I wasn't fucked. Hmm. And on the upside, you don't have to worry about earning out in advance or, or the book having been a failure. I guess it takes the, the pressure off in, in that way as well. Um, but it seems like this is that London... Was, that, that was very important for me to, to do that because, you know, it was pretty unstable what I was doing at the time. Yeah. Like, I was only doing these sort of standpoint pieces and I was doing stuff for a think tank, which was, well, was kind of like, you know, it's not... Not, 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 not great literature, is it? And, um, you know, like Standpoint has sort of sadly, you know, sort of uh, doesn't really have very much money anymore. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to do that forever. And, you know, I had that, I'd approached all the, a lot of the big newspapers. And, you know, they, they, they were all like, oh, come on. <laughs> and um, Approached them to do what then? Oh, I, after I read the Russia book, I was like, I went like, oh, have you got any jobs? And uh, the answer was, was no, or not for you. But it seems like, you know, This Is London was a, a real success. And it led you to um, to not only, you know, writing more books uh, as part of your deal, but also doing um, work for, for, for TV. Uh, could you talk us a little bit through the through that and, and the pieces that you have done for, for Newsnight and, and others? Well, so Newsnight. So I made this film for Newsnight with some of the people from the book. I asked them, you know, do, do you mind? And they were like, no, we were very happy. And so some of the people from the book featured on Newsnight package. How did that happen? Well, basically, the publisher employed a PR firm, which got in touch with Newsnight. And Newsnight were like, sure, like, well, he, can, he can make that little video. So I, I didn't contact Newsnight. That's just how that mm. happened. Did so you enjoy? Did you enjoy the process for it? And did you write the script? And and, and did you find the process of, of yeah? Of making... I wrote the script, and by that point, I'd been experimenting with a different sort of writing style. So when I was writing, this is London. I was experimenting. So this London's like written in a lot of. It's very experimental, actually. I took. I decided there's no point doing this unless you take risks. There's no point being kind of conservative about your writing style, especially when you're young. Like this is the time that you should make mistakes and. You know, if you're, it, so like a lot of it's written in, it alternates between bits that are actually written in prose poetry and bits which are written in, you know, kind of direct reporting style or bits that kind of morph into, you know, these people's point, you know, ways of looking at the world. And it's, when I came out of that, you know, there's like lots of, the chapters are written like quite differently in ways I thought it thought best reflected these people and their experiences. Some, you know, in which I was maybe maybe more inspired by like Mayhew. Some where I was maybe more inspired by like longer sentences like Amos. Some where I was, you know, more inspired by doing it like, you know, Jack London. Uh, and by the time I came out of that, I sort of had realised that kind of a kind of a very very sparse lapidary style was best like very you know almost very skeletal and i wrote this script for newsnight which i was very proud of actually which i felt sort of captured the emotions of these people and then 
Yeah, and after that, I've done a lot more experiments with that style. So I wrote a few uh, covers for the FT Life and Arts within that style. A question um, on 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 sort of style and, and on sourcing, kind of following that. I know there was a, a kind of minor fracas a few years ago when you I think you wrote an op-ed for the New York Times about the Shard, and then there was some suggestion online that some of the the factual details weren't nailed down or, or things like that. How do you how do you combine these these stylistic and you know innovations with with sort of reporting yeah, rigor? What that fracas was just horrible. So there was a. Um, so basically, I wrote. Some, what did I write? I wrote that. You know, I wrote that these the, the top of the shard were the top. The top of the shard are apartments for oligarchs, where they where they can you know sort of look down at a London beneath them and be insulated off them. And then the PR people behind the shard started pumping out all of this stuff against me, going, "Oh yeah, this this Judah like." He, uh, you know, we haven't even sold them. We haven't even sold them, which wasn't public at the time. So, and they were going, oh, and so that sort of turned into this sort of weird, like, nasty uh, Ferrari in which, you know, in which I was, like, identified as an American. And, like, like, columns were written about me in the FT and in... uh, in the Times and like and, and ben, take, the taking, Standard saying that I should go back to America. Taking, sort of moving on from that, you're connected no, I really. Want, I don't want to move on from that actually. In which I actually thought that was like basically sort of slightly anti Semitic. That this, there was one column going, oh, you should go back to Brooklyn, this Judah. And I thought, oh, fuck off. It's just like if I was called Powell, no one would have said, no one would have just assumed that. Well, and can, the, the broader question I wanted to ask was about the internet and social media and so forth. You're you're someone who's kind of embraced that, but also we were just looking. It seems that you've you've left Twitter for the time being. What yeah, what yeah. what has been your over your career your kind of interaction with social media and where do you see that mixing with a writer's uh, life? Well, it's kind of like in like 2014, 2015. It was quite I don't know. I had a good time. It was quite a lot of fun. Like, I'm so I'm kind of on my own. Like, I don't have colleagues. Like, I don't, you know, I'm just sort of doing my own thing. So it allowed me basically to sort of, I guess, get to know a lot of other journalists and sort of see what they were like. So I enjoyed that, actually. And, like, and then I became very addicted to, like, the sort of gamification of it. Like, I wanted my retweets and I wanted my, like, stars and stuff. And... It gives you a re- it gave me at the time like a real rush, but then it just Twitter tonight has basically been destroyed by like bots, witch hunts, and all the people I was sort of interested in it have just gone silent, and people don't use it in the same way anymore. And then I found that I was just asking myself like a few months ago, I was like, is Trump's favourite medium? Is it really my favourite medium? And I started to see how everybody's tweets were kind of a little bit like Trump's tweets, including my own. Like, attention-grabbing, promoting, just kind of like dumb, outrage machines. And I thought, oh. And and you've you've also left London physically as well, right? Yeah, I'm not in London, I'm in Paris. And and can you talk a little bit about what you're working on, uh, what you're working on now, and, and, uh, and, and the work that you're kind of, you know, your future work? 
so what I've done kind of what I've done actually over the last years I did these covers for the FT, uh, sorry the uh, Sunday Times magazine and I did one a sort of profile interview with the French president Emmanuel Macron and I did that kind of in terms of reporting style well these are like these are very different these are sort of I don't know, I wanted to do, like, kind of, you know, that kind of American style, like, you know, speak to everybody. I wanted to do, like, what I hadn't been doing in This Is London. I wanted to do, like, powerful people, people at the centre of things, you know, all of their advice, getting all these, like, important people on the record to say things about them. So I did have this profile of Macron, which was really interesting, and um, it was actually to me as well. And I did one that's actually coming out tomorrow on Imran Khan in Pakistan so I did I've done that did that for like a year and and, and were you contracted to write them were you doing them freelance or how did that work I just did freelance mm. and presumably just, you're also working on your, your second the second book um, for Picador well, I, well it's taken a long time to work out what I want to do to be honest uh, for that and so um I've been, I've been thinking a lot, again, about, like, you know, what, like, what is original and, like, what kind of writing style do I want to do and what, you know, what do I want to write about? And like, what is the value, what is the value added? And I, I went to school in, in French and by the end of that schooling experience, I was really fed up of the French language and the French language debate and I wanted to be, you know, I can write in French, but I didn't want to be a French writer. I didn't want to go to university in France. It felt the country was run by, you know, the country had been run by Jacques Chirac and before him by like another festering old man. And I just, it felt, it didn't feel very exciting. and The debate didn't feel very exciting. And over the last year, I have become extremely bored of the intellectual debate in the US and in the UK. And I found there was a very exciting moment in the debate after the referendum and after Trump's election, when there was a hint that we were going to have a very serious debate about ethnic change and social class. And and that's sort of gone. And like in Britain, we're just talking about the process of Brexit. And even the Brexit ideology itself, or the Corbyn ideology itself, it's, it's very empty, it's very vacuous. And in the US, it's just become this hysterical, um, Twitterized debate in which there's one topic for three days, and, and then it's completely forgotten about. And I became like very uninterested in the books that, uh, uh, that are coming out of it. You take the Michael Wolfe book as an example, there's just very little in it. Uh, there's like a lot of sensation around it and spending a lot of time in France and like slipping back into 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 French I noticed the debate here is so much more interesting and so much more you know so much more to the point and just so much richer so do you know what you're going to write then uh, well you, I'm just like doing the first stage of reporting about that mm. so uh, I want to like report for like four four months, five months, and see what see what sort of comes out of it. Well, we, we really. 
we, we look forward to, to seeing the result. Oh, thank you. Yeah, but it's just like, I, it's, it's just the experience of like going in, it's just the experience of like spending time in the French media and like just going into a French bookshop. It's just like, you know, just the world, the world of ideas and the aliveness of ideas you get here is really satisfying. And there's like a lot of writers whose work I really admire here. And I think is, you know, a lot of novels that are coming out of here, which I think are really interesting. Like I'm very bored of the state of the novel in in English, and you know, especially in the US, like people keep on parroting things like identity politics, and they refuse to get to the point and refuse to kind of break it down. And you know, a lot of our political, a lot of the political debate in the US, and therefore in English, has has become sort of like sports. Like every channel is based on ESPN in terms of the music, in terms of, like, who's up, who's down, who's winning, who's losing. And, yeah, just very shallow. Well, listen, Ben, we should, we should wrap this up, but this has been a really fascinating conversation, and we, uh, we wish you all the very best of luck with your projects going forward. Hello, it's us again with an update from our lives. Cassia, what have you been up to? I have handed in the first draft of my book and I'm uh, free until the edit comes back, in which case I'll be back at my desk. But for the moment, I'm, you know, sort of swanning around. having Footloose. Footloose and and fancy free. And it's it's bliss. How about you? Uh, I'm uh, slogging away on my book. (laughs) Still. Forget about you. Let's talk more about me. Yeah, it's still going okay. Um, I've just done a uh, finished a piece of the Paris Review, which is cool. Um, yeah, it's going all right. It's still hard work, but outside, <laughs> I think. Jolly, 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 jolly. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted as ever by me, Simon Aiken, and me, Cassie Sinclair. Our producers are Olivia Kralin, Ed Kiernan, and Liz Davies. Our social media is by Zara Hankier. Our music is by Jess Danheiser, and uh, James Edgar is responsible for our graphic design. And we are on all manner of social media platforms. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. We're on Twitter at Take Notes Always. Our website is <laughs> alwaystakenotes.com. And as ever, please do leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.